Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi everybody! Hi, Hi, Dr. Dr. Nick. Nick. <laughs> yes, hello everybody, it's Dr. Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy Live <coughs> online and on podcast. And I look forward to having your company here on 3RRR 102.7. And this app is absolutely beautiful. It feels like early spring. Here we are at the end of, uh, towards the end of August and it's just gorgeous out there. So in the studio this morning, I'm joined by two of our regular presenters. First up, our regular contributor, commentator, commandant of the control desk, panel beater. Good morning, panel beater. Good morning, Dr. Nick. Commandant. That's one I've never had before. Well, I was trying to get some alliteration happening. There, <laughs> Nailed it. And on the other side of the mic, we have our polymath psychotherapist, Ooh. Prudence Deer, wow. all of which would have alliterated very nicely if the P in psychotherapist wasn't <laughs> silent. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Lovely to be here, Nick. Good morning, Prudence. Hello, Lovely. Good to have you in the studio. Um, so here we are in lockdown six. Uh, we're also in this wonderful city of Melbourne on a glorious, glorious, beautiful morning. You're listening to what is simply the best radio station in on the planet. So it can't be all bad. <laughs> so today we have some very special guests lined up. Uh, for anyone out there wanting to keep their grey matter as healthy as possible, which hopefully means all of you, um, there's a new study starting in Melbourne looking at reducing the risk factors for dementia for those in middle age. And we'll be talking to Amanda Cross from Monash University about this later in the show. Uh, coming up shortly, so much is written and spoken about mental health, particularly depression. But what if we can make a huge difference just by changing what we eat? Well, that's the finding from a new study just published, and we'll be talking to lead author Annabel Matteson about that very shortly. But first, before we have that, we have some news. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. In the news today, um, let's skip straight past COVID. I'm sure people have heard the numbers today. 25 for Victoria. Um, could have been worse. Could have been better because there's still got a number that um, are mystery cases or not in isolation for their time of infectiousness. Oh, and for anyone listening in New South Wales, because I know we do have listeners interstate, um, really best of luck to you because it's not great for you up there. Lockdown happening, same as it is here, but your numbers are horrible. So we're thinking of you and all the best. Uh, but moving on from COVID, uh, Panel Beater, uh, you've been thinking about matters, artificial intelligence. I have, I have. Um, we were lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Joanne Trippis last week and speaking about um, AI and uh, healthcare and more specifically artificial intelligence and mental health care, talking about how um, the conversational devices like Siri and um, Google Home and um, Alexa um, might be able to help. And this article caught my mind. A, um, a, a collection of uh, researchers from a variety of places, I think it was Melbourne Uni, CSIRO, RMIT, they were looking at how artificial intelligence may be able to help um, hospital managers um, manage costs 
obviously these uh, institutions are billion dollar institutions. At, you know, um, a lot of money there, and it's taxpayers' money from an Australian point of view. We're keen to make sure that money's spent well. But it occurs to me there might be a sting in the tail, Doctor Nick and uh, uh, Prudence. Um, but, it's, but, but it's an important point, isn't it, Panel B? We forget that behind all these huge institutions, there's the very <laughs> practical matter of economics. Someone has to pay for this stuff. Someone has to work out and predict. So where does AI come into this? Yeah, you know, quite right. I mean, we've spoken about qualies and dallies before about how um, health economists try and put a value on a life and uh, care. So in this case, I'll just do a compare contrast what's now and what's being proposed for the future. At the moment, what happens is uh, a uh, patient gets admitted and there's essentially a uh, coding uh, process that each uh, patient gets coded against um, the treatment that um, they're anticipating the costs to be. But that never gets realised or otherwise until after the treatment's been done. So um, hospitals potentially can lose money if they get that estimate wrong. So what the scientists are trying to do is being able to collect all the information, all the data that is in the system already, match it with um, clinical notes from doctors and nurses, and then generate an algorithm um, that uh, is better at anticipating the costs than the coding system. And the advantage to this would be it would be more 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 accurate and more rapid, or what? Well, I, I think the um, I think the bean counters would say the um, advantages are that it's more accurate and it's more efficient. Right. The rest of us might say, and I imagine you might come from this angle, is that its efficiency should be secondary to quality of care. <laughs> right? Am I right in thinking that might be the way to... Well, I'm thinking how everyone seems to tweak figures to suit their needs, and if I can tweak an AI algorithm to make sure that the dollars are flowing into my hospital, I would be happy to do so. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's just re- worth reminding ourselves that artificial intelligence is different to just programming a computer to make a, uh, to spit out information at you. Um, the computers in most of our lives, we ask a computer for information and it gives us that information. Then we will make a decision based on that information. In this uh, future, this near future, artificial intelligence is different because it's machine learning. Mm. So the machine is using information not only to um, you know uh, process it, but to actually make a decision. And not just to do it well, but to get more betterer. Yeah, betterer. More better <laughs> as time goes. One wonders what its self-interest might be. In yeah, that too. that's right. And I don't think you can put that genie back in the bottle once it uh, gets underway. Uh, an important point. Thank you, Panel Beta. Wow. And talking healthcare, Prudence, um, segueing straight yeah, to you, you've been thinking about healthcare as well. Well, you? yeah, look, I mean, you know, and actually, this is important, isn't it? You know, we have measures of the performance of our, our healthcare systems. And uh, where does that put us, actually, in, in the context of the rest of the world? How good so is in Australia? the metal table of healthcare? In the metal table of healthcare. Stand? Well, it depends which countries join the competition. Uh-huh. Um, but if we look at the, the high income, if you like, high earning comp- uh, countries, um, and actually, um, the Commonwealth Fund, which is actually a US-based organisation, so they kind of picked the countries to look at. And interestingly, of course, uh, the US came bottom <laughs> of the scale. And, and I'm going to um, interrupt, before you even tell us where we are on the scale, what the hell are we measuring? I mean, uh, what are we well, talking we've about? just we been talk talking about, about it. Yeah. Administrative efficiency, for example. Oh, that's equity. really what's high on my priority when I'm equity. in hospital. How efficient are the yeah. administrators? Well, equity in health, um, you know, and access. Healthcare outcomes mm-hmm. um, in particular. And sort of like, you know, those sorts of measures around... Um, how effective the services? Do people have to wait long time to get access in there? Is it uh, based around, you know, what your income might be, for example, and how quickly you can get treated? And actually, Australia's done pretty well. Comes, it got a bronze overall, Woo-hoo! a bronze overall behind um, behind the field Norway. Of four. 
And the Netherlands. No, out of a field of 11. <laughs> Just 11? How yeah, many countries heads... in the world are there? Well, Panel there's you'll know the answer to that topic. I think it's 209 at last count. Yeah, yeah so well, this is sort of maybe what? I think really some comparable, like the UK, mm-hmm. like Germany, New Zealand, France, Switzerland, okay. Canada, US. So, um, I mean, where we came particularly well was around that, first of all, equity in terms of access. And, and it's Medicare that really feeds that one because you don't have to have, you know, dollars in your pocket or whatever mm-hmm. in order to get access to healthcare. And overall, the healthcare outcomes. So when people, you know, how, do we cure them or not, basically, when they get discharged from hospital or whatever, are they actually sort of better or do they, um, you know, do they succumb to something else? So we've done really well on those. We came, like, at the top of the list. Um, and actually fairly high up, we've got a silver for administrative efficiency. So maybe we don't need the AI after <laughs> don't all. Don't AI doing it. It's got us there already. So just um, outcomes us, were good. Um, who, but was, a, who was top of the list and second? You say we were third. Uh, yeah, Norway was number one mm. and uh, the Netherlands. Holland was number okay. two. And the UK coming up behind us, I guess, with their huge national health service, which um, you would hope would perform reasonably well in all of that. Um, where did we... Uh, look, I mean, there's... Uh, some issues and we didn't rate quite as well probably amongst other things because we don't have kind of public dental care whereas other other nations do so if in terms of the breadth of of coverage of health care we don't do quite so well there but overall yeah look i think we do pretty well actually it, it's it's reassuring isn't it and uh, and having worked in the uk in the national health service where i did my training and worked there for several years before i came to australia i think the national health service is a brilliant concept mm. just massively underfunded um i think the system in australia actually works extraordinarily well i didn't like it when I first arrived, primary care fee for service, <clears throat> not my thing. Yeah. Um, but overall, it's not bad. I still wonder how someone listening to this who's been on a waiting list for a knee or hip replacement in the public system for more than 12 months feels when they're told that we're near the best in the world. They must wonder mm. what on earth well, that means for those. True. <laughs> but then you balance that, that if you have something, you know, life-threateningly seriously, you know, you, you will get treated Gold standard very quickly. Yeah, always been said, it's true of the National Health Service, true of Australia, that if you get something really serious, really urgent, the public system will deal with it magnificently. Mm-hmm. Uh, fascinating. All right. Well, thank you, Prudence. That's, um, that's certainly food for thought. Um, we'll be talking shortly with nutritionist Annabelle Mattison about her latest research on the role of diet in mood disorder. So get yourselves another cup of coffee because you won't want to miss this one. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. On the line, we have Annabelle Matteson from the Centre for Healthy Brain Ageing. I think that's right. If I, if I got that right, Annabelle? You have. Very good. And where are you? You're in New South Wales. I am. I'm in Sydney. Oh, okay. How's it going up there? Lucky me. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's okay. Hopefully, the sun is shining for you, like it here is in Melbourne. So, um, uh, lifting the spirits just a little bit. Just, just tell us before we go anywhere with the research itself. Uh, what's your role at the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging? So I am a PhD student. I'm about 12 months into my PhD. So the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging mainly looks at um, the relationship between lifestyle factors and um, dementia. But uh, my study in particular, as you mentioned before, is looking at depression 
because uh, depression as well is a risk factor for uh, dementia. Excellent. And first, I won't go to ask you, tell us about the study. It was published just recently, wasn't it? What, what actually was the study? So it was a meta-analysis. So um, I'm not sure if the listeners know what a meta-analysis is, but it's a statistical way of combining all the research uh, on a particular topic. So, yeah, I worked with um, people from uh, University of New South Wales and um, Sydney Uni, and um, we combined all the studies that have published on um, published on diet and depression and, um, yeah, to come up right. with the results so that we had a better understanding of the relationship. And as soon as you said the word meta-analysis, prudence is yeah, pricked yeah. up. So Hi, <laughs> Annabelle, it's prudence here. <laughs> um, thank you for joining us today. Um, yeah, look, it's, um, it's a big study. I mean, it's always, I guess, a way with these, these things of taking, you know, looking across the literature as broadly as you can. Um, just to sort of help, I think, me and probably a few other people understand things, when we talk about these sorts of studies like, and we use words like prospective and observational and also um, longitudinal and um, whatever the other one is, um, uh, cross-sectional. Can you just explain like, how these studies work, what these terms mean? Okay, so it, yeah, it's a very good question and it's kind of really important um, in this area. So like the, the highest quality of study would be considered an intervention study. So in an intervention study, you get two different groups and one of them I would get to change their diet, the other one that I wouldn't get to change their diet and I'd then compare the differences between um, the two groups in terms of um, follow-up of depression. Um, But that doesn't actually work very well in these, um, particularly with relation to diet and depression because, for one, it's very hard to get people to um, adopt a new diet for a long period of time. Um, which is what we're needing to look at in this area. And um, the other thing, like if I get people to eat more fruit and veg, then they are more likely to tell me that they think that they feel better. People who eat, you know, more fruit and veg expect that it's going to give them a benefit. So it's hard for me to um, untangle the two. So So So, is that more more like a kind of placebo effect, is it? That you actually, you know, if you think this is going to be good for you, you're going to feel better. And and what these these participants in the studies would be reporting, self-reporting presumably on how they feel. Yeah, so generally the studies, um, someone will complete uh, complete a um, short questionnaire, um, you know, questions around their mood. Um, Yeah, and so essentially, uh, yeah, you are self-reporting whether uh, you're depressed or not. So, yeah, intervention studies are lacking um, in this area for that reason. So instead, um, we rely on observational studies. Mm -hmm. So observational studies are essentially when you're observing people over time um, without um, getting them to change anything. So um, we talked as well about perspective versus cross-sectional studies. So a perspective study is where you follow someone over a period of time. So you measured them at the start and then you might check in on them every couple of years. Whereas cross-sectional, you just look at one point in time um, and you you probably always find that with a cross-sectional study in diet and depression that someone's diet uh, is likely to be worse if they're depressed because we all know if we're not feeling that great, we are probably more likely to reach Mm. junk food. So, yeah, that's why um, for our meta-analysis, we've uh, relied on um, the longitudinal studies, so following people over time. So, Annabelle, from my point of view as a clinician, the 
crucial question is how do we untangle that question of the chicken and the egg? Is it the people who feel lousy eat bad food and sit on the couch and don't move and so feel worse? Uh, is it that the diet itself is causative in any way of the mood? How do you untangle those two in this kind of meta-analysis? So um, as we were talking, um, yeah, we were only looking at longitudinal studies. So what we do is look at someone's diet in the first place and then we follow them over a period of time to see whether they develop um, depression. So we've made sure they didn't have depression when they started um, and whether they've developed depression in the follow-up. Okay. The and other I think, point... Oh, sorry, carry on. Okay. Go on, carry on. So, the other thing that you mentioned was, yeah, like they're sitting on the couch, they're not doing any physical activity. So in all these kind of observational studies, people um, are generally, they'll provide their physical activity levels and so statistically we adjust for those so that everybody's on an even playing field. Um, so as much as possible, we can make sure that um, the effect that we're seeing is actually um, relating to the diet. Okay. And I mean, okay, so we're talking, we're talking depression here. We're talking depression in older people, middle-aged to older people. So, you know, how prevalent is this as a condition? Um, you know, what's the kind of the burden here for, for people and the, the systems? So the good news on this one is that as we age, the actual rates of depression um, decline somewhat. So in sort of people 60 and older, uh, it sits more around sort of the 10 to 12%. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing that I wasn't aware of when I started looking at this area is that in terms of burden, um, depression has a bigger impact on older adults than it does on younger adults. So in an older adult, um, depression um, has a bigger impact on them physically. They might not be able to live independently anymore. Um, It also impacts their cognition. As I mentioned before, like having depression is a risk factor for dementia. So compared to a younger person, depression has a much larger burden. So uh, it's one ten twenty three here on three triple R. You're listening to Radiotherapy. We've got Annabelle Madison from the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging in uh, Sydney, and we are talking about depression, mood disorder. This can be triggering for some people. Just keep in mind, if this raises any issues, you can contact Beyond Blue. There's always Lifeline on one three double one one four if necessary. Now, Annabelle, we've, we've kind of dissected whether or not we feel that this study is reliable, if you like, and it sounds like there's quite significant efforts made to make sure that the results tell us something meaningful. So let's talk results. Uh, what is the link that you found in this study between diet and depression? So the main things that we uncovered was um, a beneficial association for um, people who had higher intakes of either fruit or vegetables. So um, there was a 15% um, reduction of risk for people who had higher intakes of fruit and a 9% um, reduction for people who ate more vegetables. And then conversely, for people who ate more of what we would consider a Western diet or um, people who ate more foods which have been shown to be inflammatory, those kind of foods and diets increased someone's risk of depression. So, that, so, that, so that's two really yeah. important questions, Western diet and foods that are inflammatory. <laughs> um, first up, Western diet. I mean, I consider myself a Westerner, a reasonable diet. What's wrong with the Western diet and what is it? What are you defining as a Western diet? So different people have different views of what a Western diet might be, but generally it would be considered a food, a 
diet, which is high in processed foods, high in meat, low in fruit and vegetables, um, refined carbohydrates. Um, yeah, okay. kind of, yeah. I guess so. I'm one of the things. So, there, I mean, there are different ways of. Um, there are different diets and, and different kind of slants on them. I mean, one that showed up in in this study was the Mediterranean diet, and it was kind of featured by the fact that it didn't appear to sort of positively or negatively impact the outcomes in terms of in terms of depression. So, is that right? And and when it, that, that that is uh, the Mediterranean diet, which I think some people would think is olives and red wine, but actually is something that's quite high in in vegetables and not too high in in oh, meat. You, you taking away the red wine? from your prudence <laughs> <laughs> well I'm just wondering you know how do, how do you um, uh, reconcile that perhaps that the Mediterranean diet didn't appear to reduce risk yeah it's a really good question and um, I was surprised by those results as well um, because a, a um, Mediterranean diet is high in fruit and vegetables and um, it would be considered anti-inflammatory um, but with all of these studies um, it is difficult for people to um, measure the exact diet. So uh, people had different ways of defining a Mediterranean diet. Um, there weren't a huge number of studies in this area, uh, but the Western diet has, uh, sorry, the Mediterranean diet has been extensively studied in other age groups and generally there has been a be beneficial um, effect shown. So, um, yeah, I'd say the jury is still out on whether the um, Mediterranean diet is beneficial for um, the mental health of older adults. And I have no problem accepting that a, a higher ratio of fruit and veg has got to be good. That's what our mums told us. Mums are always right, so I have no problem with that one. But uh, tell me what this inflammatory index is about and what, what do we mean by talking about a diet that's pro-inflammatory? What, what inflames things and what actually are we inflaming and why does it matter? Oh, my God, that's three questions in one. It's a terrible <laughs> thing to do to someone. <laughs> Pick whichever you like. Okay, so um, the inflammatory diet um, was something essentially that researchers have come up with and so they looked at all the research out there where they measured um, the relationship between what somebody ate and um, the effect that it had on their inflammatory markers. Um, inflammatory markers are blood markers and C-reactive protein and all sorts of fancy um, names. But, yeah, essentially they looked um, in the literature to see um, what people had found in the past about foods and nutrients that were more likely to be um, inflammatory. So unsurprisingly, things like um, foods that were high in saturated fat, high sugar, um, you know, highly processed foods that you would think um, were sort of highly part of the Western diet are um, yeah, pro-inflammatory foods. And you can actually measure that with these inflammatory markers. So doctors would be familiar. These are very commonly used inflammatory markers. So you can actually measure change in those from diet alone. Yeah, yeah. Yep, and, and, so what, and what's getting inflamed that might be the trigger for affecting mood? Um, so there's been a lot of research recently around the gut microbiome. So, um, yeah, you see systemic inflammation um, from the gut microbiome uh, can uh, cross into the brain. And um, so, yeah, potentially uh, it's the relationship between um, the gut microbiome and um, its effect on the brain. 
It's crucially important, this, isn't it, Annabelle? When I was a baby doctor back in the 80s, no one talked about diet, inflammation, the gut microbiome, certainly not in relation to mental health and this understanding of how our gut bacteria are behaving and how well we look after them can affect our mental health. I think it's an extraordinary shift in how we understand mental health. So... Uh, a couple of specifics we can because people often talk about fish uh, should we be loading up on the fish is that going to keep our brains healthy ward off depression so um, that wasn't as great news uh, so there were only three studies that looked at fish and um, there was no association between um, fish intake and um, someone's risk of depression but having said that the um, studies were all conducted in different countries and we know that in different countries people eat different kinds of fish so it might be that certain types of fish like oily fish are actually beneficial but that in the particular countries where we were looking at um, they weren't eating enough um, oily fish to show a difference. Okay, so no proof about the fish, but might be a good idea. Now, a crucial one that everyone listening to this on a Sunday morning wants to know, what about coffee? That was um, good news, I would say. So there weren't enough studies. (laughs) I feel better already. There we go, go and order another coffee. Coffee, but what about tea? Um, (laughs) Well, so, yeah, that was kind of combined. So um, there weren't enough studies for us to actually combine them. Um, There were two studies that had um, coffee and one that combined um, coffee and tea together. So both of the studies, which just looked at um, coffee, did find a benefit, um, but the the study that combined coffee and tea together didn't. Um, So it might indicate that there's something in coffee beyond just the caffeine, which is um, causing a benefit, Uh, but yeah. There aren't enough studies for us to know. In in summary, can you just say for our listeners, what would be your top tips for keeping your brain healthy through diet and keeping your mood as good as possible? What what are the top tips? So my top tips would be to eat more um, fruit and vegetables. um, Get those processed foods out of your um, diet. Um, And, yeah, as well, we need to keep in mind there are other things like physical activity and social interaction, which are also equally important. Um, And, yeah, we can't just rely on diet. It's not going to solve um, people's mental health problems. You sound like my um, mum. Eat your greens. Exactly. Eat the rainbow, I think, is now the expression. Eat the rainbow. I like that. Um, Annabelle, thank you so much for your time. That's been absolutely fascinating. Keep up the good work. Keep our brains ageing healthily. And thank you very much for joining us here on Radiotherapy. Thanks for having me. That was Annabelle Madison, nutritionist researcher from the Centre for Healthy Brain Ageing. Oh, wow. Um, I'd love to say check out that research. Um, I'd say I'd put a link on our Facebook page, but I've got no idea how to do that. Uh, <laughs> that'll be to make, <laughs> Maybe you can help it. me out on this one. <laughs> In a moment, uh, we'll be talking with Dr. Amanda Cross from Monash University uh, about their upcoming trial on helping to reduce dementia risks in middle age. It's too late for me, I'm afraid, but maybe not for you, dear listener. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. On the line from Monash University, we have Dr Amanda Cross. Good morning, Amanda. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, you're at Monash University. You're about to embark on a new study. So first off, tell us who you are. What You're a doctor. Is that medical, PhD, proper doctor? What's your background? Uh, I have a PhD, so I'm actually a pharmacist, um, and then a couple of years ago I went and did a PhD looking at um, medication use in um, people who had newly been diagnosed with dementia, and yeah, now we've got this exciting new trial looking at preventing dementia starting. So I think dementia prevention is something which anyone who's over about the age of 18 is interested in. If they're not, they should be. (laughs) Scourge of older age. So tell us about this trial. What actually are you looking at? Yeah, so this one's a bit unique, I guess, because, yes, dementia is on the forefront of our mind as we're getting older and in that bracket of when we get dementia. But we're actually targeting younger people, so middle-aged, 45 to 65, and assessing their their risk of getting dementia and trying to work with them to reduce that risk. And what sort of risk factors are we talking about that you're trying to reduce? Yes, yeah, so we've got a number of risk factors. We're, we're targeting three what we call protective factors. Um, so Annabelle's talked about one of those just previously, which is healthy diet, also physical activity and also cognitive activity, so keeping our mind active. And then we've got 12 risk factors, which they range from things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity, smoking, um, depression as well, uh, social isolation. We've got quite a few that we're targeting. And so just to clarify, is this an intervention study where you're going to do something to these people to see if it makes a difference or is it observational, just following them up, what's happening? Yeah, this is an intervention study. So we're implementing two different levels of intervention um, across, we're aiming for 34 clinics across um, New South Wales and Victoria. And what are you actually going to intervene? What are you going to do to them? So our first level of our intervention, um, the people will receive an individualised dementia risk report, which sort of outlines which of the risk factors are perhaps more focused for their life, which ones they need to focus on, and they will get some education and then referral to their doctor. And then our second level, which is what we would call our Happy Mind program, is they will also get that individualised dementia risk report. But they also then, we are training the nurses in the um, GP clinics on behaviour change and motivational interviewing. So the patients will then sit down with those nurses um, six times across the three-year study and more if needed as well um, to help sort of plan an actual program of what lifestyle changes they need, what medication changes they need, those sort of things to help reduce those risks. And they also get access to a new app that we've designed with CSIRO, which is the Happy Mind app. So that helps them to manage their risk factors at home and monitor how they're going against their goals. We love an app. An, an app with a name <laughs> like Happy Mind has, has, got me, has got me feeling better already. <laughs> so so, so that, is there another level of intervention, did you say, or is that it? So, so that's our so our baseline intervention. They get just the report, right. um, education, and referral to the doctor, and then the main intervention. They get these sort of one-on-one sessions with the trained nurse and the app as well. And what sort of outcome measures have we got for this? What are we looking at? I'm presuming it's not going to last long enough with that small number to see who gets dementia and who doesn't. No, so it's a three-year study, so we're unlikely to sort of see development of dementia within that three years. But what we're looking at is the dementia risk. So Mm -hmm. we're using a score which is um, developed by the Australian National University. It's an Alzheimer's disease risk index. So basically it asks you lots of different questions about the risk factors for dementia and gives you a score, and that score sort of correlates to how how high your risk is of developing dementia later. So our trial is aiming to reduce that score, and we're going to um, score the participants 
when they start, so at baseline, and then at 12 months, 24 months, and 36 months. So I've got trial master panel beater here. <laughs> He's itching to, to ask you a couple of things. <laughs> I hand over yep. to him. Hey, Amanda, this sounds fascinating. Um, and I'm particularly interested in the uh, the age selection, the 45-65. But, um, and um, coming from uh, a real significant ignorance here... But my understanding is that there's cognitive, natural cognitive decline over a lifespan um, anyway. How, how do we determine risk factors for cognitive decline and ultimately things like dementia um, from natural decline? Um, presumably, if we all lived long enough, we'd all end up a little bit, you know... <laughs> Rough around yes, the edges. <laughs> there is a degree of a natural decline, as we'll say, as yeah, we all start to forget things a little bit as we get older. Um, but things like what's called mild cognitive impairment and dementia, they actually are, a, you have a greater memory loss in those conditions and dementia in particular starts to affect sort of your activities of daily living. So your ability to look after yourself and um, sort of perform normal things like getting dressed and cooking food and that sort of thing. So, um there's those we can score those with memory tests sort of asking you know about words that you remember or doing like little quizzes that sort of thing as well as there's also brain scans which you can sort of look for structural changes which indicate that there is dementia and not just normal memory decline and um if we think about the 500 people who are going to be a part of this where are you going to get them from yeah, so this is what's called a cluster randomised control trial. So we're actually recruiting the um, GP clinics first, so that's what's called our cluster. So we're um, recruiting 34 clinics, and then each of those clinics will then um, recruit about 15 of their patients each because we want to build this into the normal processing of the clinic. So we want the, G- the person's normal GP and their normal nurse and their sort of normal health professional team to be sort of upskilled to help them with this trial. So, okay, yeah, so we'll be no, recruiting Yeah, so no, there's no point in anyone uh, Googling Amanda Cross at Monash and then bringing you up and saying, oh, I want to be part of that trial. They have to go to their GPs <laughs> and persuade their GP clinics to join the trial. Is that right? Yeah, but best to go have a chat to your GP or your nurse um, and then they can um, contact us and we can definitely get um, the ball rolling that way. Okay, so go and pester your GP to go and talk to Amanda Cross. Prudence, you've got a question. Yeah, hi, Amanda. Um, yeah, I'm quite interested in these sort of cognitive activities side of things and I suppose both in terms of what you might be baselining. So what do you, what do you look for um, in people in terms of perhaps getting a risk factor? And I, I'm, I'm also very interested in what would constitute, you know, a, a, a beneficial intervention. I mean, we, we, we get apps and there are apps there that kind of keep our brains supposedly active and we, you know, it, it kind of tests us or we could spend our days doing crosswords or Sudoku or something. So, I mean, uh, is there anything that's particular that's stands out in terms of cognitive activities? There's not sort of any research that sort of one particular activity is going to sort of save us all, Um, but there's sort of a collection of um, activities which they suggest. So things like, as you mentioned, crossword puzzles, um, but also reading or doing um, artistic things like painting or sewing, woodwork, cooking, all those sort of ones Mm -hmm. which just require a little bit more brain power than perhaps sitting in front of the TV each night. Yeah, Yeah, and possibly even some sort of, you know, learning a new physical skill as well as mental skill. And I think there was some studies that we, we perhaps... Um, I, I read a little while ago and it was about learning something new could be quite impactful yeah so things like learning new languages um, anything that sort of makes your brain work a little bit mm. harder so yeah new languages or a new art skill or even um, like linking into sort of some of the social aspects sort of going out 
and going yeah. to social activities and interacting can be really beneficial as well. The, the very simple um, sort of analogy that I make is that as we get older, the sort of jungle is trying to take over our brain. If we keep walking down the same paths all the time, we'll keep those paths clear, but the jungle will just creep up and take over the rest of it. And we have to push out into different paths to keep the jungle from taking over too much. That's my very simple way of putting it. Would you think that's a fair way of talking about keeping the brain healthy? Yeah, I think that's a really good analogy. I haven't heard that one before, but I think that's really good, yeah. And sometimes, I guess, when we're walking down the path, you can sort of forget to do these other new and exciting and perhaps beneficial activities, but it's really important to try and yeah, keep yourself engaged in these things. Amanda, you've, um, we've got uh, one uh, profile point, and that's the age group. Are you collecting specific information about the various professions of participants, people who might we might, um, at, a, at least at a casual level, go work in high-stress jobs compared to those who, you know, whatever low-stress these days means? Um, but uh, is, are there distinctions to be made about um, the professional and working life, and, and indeed unemployed people, for example? Uh, yeah, so we'll be collecting a lot of um, sort of other demographics as well, and um, uh, so things like uh, whether they're employed or whether they're working part time or full time, what their actual role is that they're working, if they are working, um, how many years of schooling they've done, because early life education is also um, can impact the development of dementia as well. So we will be able to look at the results and sort of adjust for those other factors and see whether any of those modify the impact of our trial as well. So I guess the correlate there is something to do with stress, right? Yeah, so um, I mean, some of our risk factors are looking at things like um, anxiety and depression and that sort of thing. So there are additional sort of questions that we're asking about stress and um, mood and all those things as well. But yes, depending on how many... Obviously, the sample size, so the number of people we get with each sort of group of, group of jobs will sort of limit our ability to make analyses there but yeah we will be able to look at that to some degree and amanda i think all our listeners want to know what the crucial things are to try and keep our brains healthy before we go there though i just want to go back to your happy mind app um which i'm sure is an acronym (laughs) (laughs) Tell, tell us what happy mind stands for Yeah, so Happy Mind, um, it's a bit of a long one, but it stands for the Holistic Approach in Primary Care for Preventing Memory Impairment and Dementia. Wow. Well, (laughs) I actually saw a wonderful piece of research once which showed that trials which have a good acronym get quoted more often than trials with boring acronyms. So I think you've come up with one that guarantees you a lot of publicity once this is published. Is this Happy Mind app something which other people who are not part of the trial can get access to? Is it restricted to people on the trial? At this stage, it's restricted because it's actually the app is personalised for each person that's um, involved in the trial. So it's actually set up by the nurse and the GP and all their um, individualised goals and targets and risk factors are implemented into the app. So each person's app will look different and will have slightly different targets. So it's not available at the moment for the general public. And so I think that's a really important point, that this isn't an app that is supposed to be one of these brain training apps. It's more a motivational tool for the individual to achieve the goals that they're trying to change and and to improve their lifestyle. Is that correct? Yeah, so um, they can sort of enter how many 
serves of different types of foods they're eating and it will tell them how they're going against their goals. They can enter how many minutes of exercise or it tracks the number of steps you do each day and that will also show you against your goals. Things like you can enter your blood pressure, you can enter um, your... There's a few questions on mood and, um, and then the clinician can also check back and have a look at all the results that you've sort of entered and see if there are times that you're perhaps not within your goal or if you're trending the wrong way and then they can sort of intervene. They can call you up or they can talk at the next appointment as well. So let's talk about some of the things people can do to help with dementia and I'll just tell people it's nearly 10 to 11. We're talking to Dr Amanda Cross from Monash University about a trial about preventing or reducing risk factors for dementia in middle age. Um, we're talking apps. I mean, one of the things that I understand is if you summarise the entire research around dementia and apps is that all these brain training apps make you better at doing the apps. They don't actually prevent dementia. Would that be a fair summary? Yeah, I think there is, there is a degree of that, yes. <laughs> okay. okay, so let's move away from apps. Um, I, I don't think we really want to encourage our people to sit on the couch looking at an app as a way of preventing dementia. What would, what would be the – you mentioned 12 risk factors. Let's go through some of those. What are some of the most important risk factors that we know matter when it comes to the risks of dementia? Yeah, so um, there's a number which are related to sort of our heart health, so what we call cardiovascular health, and they're things like high blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, obesity, smoking, mm -hmm. um, so all of those ones. Um, I guess one that I find quite interesting that people perhaps don't know so much about is um, hearing loss or hearing impairment is Ooh. actually strongly associated mm -hmm. with dementia. Okay, so we'll just start with the first one because I think this is crucially important that everything that's good for your heart is probably good for your brain and for your dementia risk, so... Um, when I'm talking with patients, we talk about heart health and we talk about that crossing over to brain health. But you just mentioned hearing loss. Now, that's a new one to me. I mean, tell us about that. Yeah, so hearing loss, and this is one that's actually in midlife. So hearing loss in midlife is strongly associated. It's one of the risk factors um, which they think perhaps maybe 8% of dementia cases are actually potentially related to hearing loss in middle age. So it's a really strong one and perhaps one that's not well known. But how is this modifiable? I mean, if you lose your hearing, is it about getting hearing aids early or are you just doomed to dementia as soon as you can't hear what's going on on the telly? No, so some of it's about prevention, so making sure we're protecting our ears from sort of excessive noise exposure. Some of it is about early intervention. So if you are perhaps thinking that you're not hearing things well or you're having to put the volume up higher on the TV, that sort of thing, is to go get your check, your hearing checked as soon as possible. And then if there is some hearing impairment detected, it's about making sure you've got a hearing aid, it's appropriately fitted and it's working properly and you're actually using it. Amanda, a couple of things occur to me. I think this is fascinating. It really is. But I'm a bit sure uh, there is more than one or two listeners in the uh, RRR audience who spent a lot of time at the front row of the Tote Hotel here in <laughs> Melbourne um, and uh, with their ears up against speakers and the other thing that then I thought of was people who in their younger days, so you're recruiting from 45, in their younger days played sport and may have had a, um, a concussion or something earlier in sport. So what are we saying about stuff that occurred early in life um, and the causes that you're referring to now later in life, like, like hearing loss? Um, yeah, so hearing loss, obviously the damage to our hearing can start any time in life and some of those sort of earlier exposures, whether it's at a nightclub or a, um, a concert or something like that, or if it's to do with certain jobs which are constantly exposed to loud noise, 
um, can obviously increase your risk of hearing loss in middle age and later life. Um, interesting, you also mentioned um, sort of sporting injuries. Traumatic brain injury is another one which is strongly sort of associated with later risk of dementia as well. Obviously not something that we can do much about once it's happened, but it's, yeah, making sure that we're trying to prevent us being in a situation where that does happen. So just to clarify the hearing loss questions, because this to me, yep. is absolutely crucial. So we're saying to people, protect your ears. We're saying this to people all the time anyway, because we know how easy it is to accumulate noise damage over the years when you're younger, which can lead to both tinnitus and or hearing loss later in life. But I had no idea that it was also a risk for dementia. That is fascinating. So add that to the hugely important reasons why we should protect our ears as we go through life. But then the thing you're saying as well is if you are having trouble with your hearing, uh, don't ignore it. Um, If I'm hearing you correctly, using things like properly fitted hearing aids on a regular basis may actually help reduce your risk of developing dementia. Is that correct? It does, yeah. They actually have shown that um, if you are wearing your hearing aids appropriately and sort of every day, but yeah, they can actually protect against... Well, I'm down um, to the audiologist tomorrow. I don't care. I don't need them yet. I'm going to get them in advance. Yeah. <laughs> Prudence. Uh, well, I just think it raises a question then. Is it something to do with like sensory inputs and that, you know, if, if you get a decline in sort of the data that's coming into your brain, that it's it bits of it shut down or just big, you know, atrophy or something? Is is there, do we know, is there, are there other sensory systems that are also, in, that if they declined, would perhaps be a risk factor? Uh, I'm not sure 100% about the other sensory sort of impacts. I assume there would be, but I guess there's um, hearing loss is sort of one of the more prevalent sensory um, losses. Well, imagine if if I might, I think social isolation, which might be a version of sensory loss, is is that something which you've looked at? Social isolation is one of our risk factors we're also looking at as well, and I guess potentially something that is going to is impacting us all a lot more at the moment with um, sort of COVID and lockdowns. Um, so that is definitely one that we are looking at. And in terms of the hearing loss, um, they do think that it is to do, um, having hearing loss in midlife does lead to greater volume loss of um, certain structures in the brain, which can cause the memory impairment. Is there, is there some sort of threshold on that? Because we're talking about hearing loss, and I'm sure most people are probably going, well, I don't hear as well as I used to. So <laughs> is, there, is there a sort of acceptable level of decline and that there's some sort of threshold beyond which, you know, you're increasing? There's no hope. Um, I think the threshold that, that is based on the uh, World Health Organization, which is about 25 decibels, but I wouldn't want to be quoted on that. Uh, <laughs> Best to talk to the yeah, expert okay. on that one. Right. <laughs> so we've talked about socialization, social isolation, talked about hearing loss, a big surprise to me. We've talked about cardiovascular risk factors. What if we left off the risk list for dementia? Um, So, I mean, Annabelle talked about depression previously, so that's on there as well. But then there's also just sort of your lifestyle changes, and many of them act as more protective factors. So making sure you're exercising enough, you're eating healthy. We talked about the cognitive training, but making sure you're not um, quitting smoking or not starting smoking, ideally, Mm -hmm. um, and also making sure you're not drinking excessive amounts of alcohol. I guess sleep goes in there as well. Sleep is in there as well and sleep apnea um, as well. We're screening people for sleep apnea as well. And it's interesting about the activity. There was a study I read just recently looking at an intervention study looking at the uh, white matter of older American adults um, and taking some sedentary people and um, 
small group doing nothing, some um, doing brisk walking three times a week, and some learning to dance. And um, the active group uh, did do better on MRI scans and cognitive testing six months later. But interestingly, the walking group did better than the learning to dance group. Hmm. Um, And there was a theory that that was because the learning to dance group were a bit slow at learning. They spent more time standing around (laughs) being talked at by the instructor than actually doing anything. (laughs) But the thing that really struck me was how 40 minutes of brisk walking three times a week was shown to make a difference both in cognitive tests and in MRI scans of white matter preservation um, in just six months. Have you come across that sort of um, really quite radical change with just a single intervention elsewhere? Um, there's a number of studies which are looking at um, yeah, physical activity and it's yeah, quite incredible and um, how much impact it can make, not just on our sort of on the mental health, but also on your cardiovascular health, like your heart health and your mood and everything as well. So there's quite a lot of people researching that. And um, on our team, we do have um, experts looking at that as well, because we've got quite a large team running this trial. So if you take away the obvious ones like heavy smoking and alcoholism and lifestyle, things like that, that you can change, what would be your top tips, tips for keeping your brain healthy as you age? Uh, I think we'd have to focus on those, those protective factors. So, yeah, the healthy eating, the um, keeping physically active and keeping mentally active and go get your hearing checked as well. <laughs> yes. To, to that point, um, uh, following on from Dr Nick there, is, uh, is what we think about as prevention the same um, behaviours that we think about as treatment or, or, or management of dementia? Yeah, a lot of them are actually very similar um, and sometimes depending on... The, what type of dementia you get, but especially all the sort of cardiovascular and the healthy lifestyle things, they're all still very relevant, even as you start getting symptoms of dementia or symptoms of um, early stages like mild cognitive impairment. It's one of the things that always amazes me. I've said this before on this show and elsewhere, but every story we do, it doesn't matter whether it's about asthma, whether it's about heart disease, diabetes, mental health, and here we are talking about healthy brain aging and dementia. Exercise, exercise, exercise. It always comes up. On your bike. (laughs) (laughs) And Prudence is saying that because I battled my way through the northerly winds up Nicholson Street on on the way here this morning because uh, I think if there's a... there's a unifying message to get out to listeners about how to keep healthy in mind and body and spirit, then exercise just comes top of the list all the time. Um, I doubt that you'll disagree with that one, Amanda. No, it's definitely up there, yeah, for all these sort of um, health conditions, yes. (laughs) Amanda, thank you so much for your time. That's been absolutely fascinating. Good luck with the study and when you've completed it and know what, what the results are, get in touch and we'll have you back on air. Thank you for coming on Radiotherapy. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Amanda Cross from Monash University um, on this new trial that's starting on um, dementia risk factors in middle age. Um, Sadly, a category which I no longer subscribe to and couldn't be a part of that trial. But there we are. I think it's really important that you, like, as you said, Dr. Nick, we just keep returning to some fundamentals, don't we? There's... It's great that this research is taking place, but we're just going to keep coming back to exercise, diet, sleep, good relationships, and um, stay off the grog as much as you can. Don't take up the ciggies. If we modify the nasty substances going into the body and then move the body that's modified, then uh, we're not going to do too badly. Yeah, if there's a simple message, that's it. Funnily enough, I've had a text message while we were talking to Amanda from someone who is a triple R radiotherapy devotee and happens to be a patient of my clinic saying, I am advocating for your clinic to become my 
of this trial because I want to be on it. <laughs> so, uh, Amanda, you have someone who's desperate to get onto your trial who's already been in touch. <laughs> there we go. So it's nearly time for us to wrap up. So we just have to say thank you to our phoning guest researchers, Annabelle Matteson from the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging. And just now, Dr. Amanda Cross, a fantastic uh, conversation from Monash Uni. Also, a huge thank you to Studio Companions, Prudence Dear and Panel Beta. Yes. I've been Dr. Nick. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.